filmmakers. Welcome back to Film Dependence, a micro-budget podcast for micro-budget filmmakers. Normal service has almost resumed this week. Still a little bit more rushed than I would like, but we have got the second half of Michael Toad's episode. I know, hooray, you're all looking forward to that. What did you all think of the Nolan reviews last week? Did anyone listen to them? I I stand by a lot of them. I know it's a bit of a departure for the channel, but I, I might I might play with that a little bit. Right, biggest news I could think of this week is Charlotte Charlotte Scarlett Johansson suing Disney over the release of Black Widow. Apparently, if you release something half in cinema and half online. You're not going to make quite as much money as if you'd only released it in cinema. And people are now starting to get a little bit testy about that. Affects the wallets. People start getting upset. Who would have thought? Interestingly, though, one of the big rebuttals to this is that star power isn't really star power anymore. People aren't impressed with celebrities. They are impressed with the characters they play. And I'm wondering, is that really the case? I mean... I'm going to stick with the MCU, but if someone else was playing Iron Man other than RDJ, I, I don't know. I don't think I don't think that argument really got a leg to stand on. If I had a bit more time to go into it, I would, and I might actually next week. But, I mean, yes, characters, characters are great. I mean, Terminator, played by someone other than Arnold, may still be quite intimidating, but it would not be the same. And we all know it wouldn't be the same. So, yeah, I don't know why that argument started to gain any weight really still who knows anyway we have got a trilogy trilogy to crack on with so i am going to welcome michael toe back to the show so i will leave that with that and segue now into the trilogy trilogy um think you're familiar with this i messaged you about it beforehand it's three questions about three things you are uh, you ready for this mm-hmm yeah, Brilliant. go for it. Brilliant. So, so question, question one, one, your three biggest influences. Okay, so I'm going to go, I'm probably going to go a little different direction than most people will on this. I'm going to give you one person and Did two you? things. Um, okay. And the one person is Norman Holland. Uh, Norman uh, was an editor who also taught at USC. Um, he wrote a book called The Lean Forward Moment. Um, unfortunately, we lost Norman a couple of years ago, but his theories on editing, I just fell in love with. Um, you know, Norman has has this theory in a very loose nutshell. This isn't doing it justice, but he has this theory that in every scene, in every reel, in every film, there are specific lean forward moments and you are trying to edit towards those moments and to to accentuate those moments you have to use some type of change something has to change to get an audience to lean forward and pay attention and there's many things as editors that we can use to create that change we can use pacing from fast to slow from slow to fast uh, we can use sound effects we can use sound as a whole the the increase in the complexity of the sound or taking the sound away completely, anything like that, that makes the, the viewer pay attention. Those, those are yeah. the things that create that lean forward moment. So Norman Holland um, is number one, and he's got a book out there called the lean forward moment. I highly suggest it. 
Um, I'm not familiar with the name. Has he edited anything guy would have well, I would recognize? I think Heathers is probably the most famous film he edited. I okay. mean, obviously you can IMDB him and and see his whole yeah. whole list of stuff that he's done. Um so let me segue into things. So uh, yeah. the first the first of the two things is music. I think if you're going to be an editor, you have to be familiar with music and not any specific kind of music, just music as a whole, because music will give you a feel for rhythm and give you a feel for pacing. There's times when I'm cutting dialogue that I'm listening to the rhythm of the dialogue, the characters saying, and I'm cutting based on that dialogue, based on that rhythm of the dialogue, the pacing of the dialogue. And that comes directly from just being a fan of music. Music also gives you a sense of tension and release and, and helps you understand that tension and release because a lot of that is what we're doing as an editor. We're building tension to this moment where we get this piece of information and that's the release. Um, so, so you, you have to, you have to understand that. Um, and you have to understand how, how that, that rhythm, that pacing makes you feel and, and music will, will help you understand that feeling. I mean, I can't say, I can't tell you how many times I've been asked, why did you put the cut there? And I put the cut there because that's, it felt right there. And I am going to, so it's it's about feeling and 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 to get to that point that you understand that feeling you have to understand that rhythm i mean you also have to just cut just cut stuff cut anything to get that 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 feeling for where the cut is supposed to be so music that's my one thing and the other second i've just want to chime in on this because I 100% agree with you about the, about the music thing. Um, not I can't really comment on how it affects the edit, but um, like I'm I'm a big fan of music myself. It's uh, one of the things I enjoy listening to. It's what else are you going to do with music but listen to it? But um, I I've recently got back into writing things and. Just, just as a little bit of an experiment for myself to see how we would go, I thought, right, I'm going to pretend that this scene is already in existence. This scene already has a soundtrack playing across it. I'm going to work out what that song is, and then I'm going to use that song to pace the the way I write this scene. And to be honest, it's, it's the best decision that I have made for writing since I decided to start writing it it makes it so much easier to structure a scene because it's there like if you think of narrative storytelling and, and whatnot one of the earliest thing ways that that happened was was sort of through like opera and big big show number production that, that sort of thing it's still there all of all of that is still there it's just it's been changed now, so the songs aren't songs anymore. But the the structure, the the DNA of it, is still in pretty much every film you're gonna see. And 
And I would argue that it goes back farther than just, you know, big operas. It goes back to the traveling bard who went from village to village telling the stories through music. Right. I think it goes back even farther than that. The one thing I will say on music, though, is I unless I'm cutting something that is specifically going to be designed to be cut towards music. So something like, say, a motion graphic for a trade show or, or something like that, that I know is going to mm-hmm. be cut to music and the music's going to drive it. Unless it's something like that, I will not add music until the very, very last thing that I do. And the reason for that is that music, music is like heroin when it comes to your feelings. It's a shot in the arm that goes directly to the emotional part of your brain, right? So music drives that emotion. And I think if you put music in too early, you're not going to get a true feeling for whether or not your dialogue and your pacing and your cutting is driving the emotion you want. So I, I don't put music in until after I have milked as much emotion out of the dialogue, the performances, the cutting, because at that point, when you add the music, it's only going to enhance. It's not going to cover up, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Does it ever work the other way? Like, will you ever edit a scene and then when you add in the music, presumably that the director wants or the composer, whoever's in charge of that music, and it didn't sync up, so then you've had to go back and, and edit things that you thought worked well. Uh, yes, in situations where I've had to use, use pre-produced music. Um, in those situations, sometimes, you, you know, you'll slip and edit here or there, just to kind of make it work a little better with the music um, so that they enhance each other. I mean, the optimal situation is that you put in the temp music um, and then it goes to a composer who's going to score it. And you have an opportunity to do a spotting session with the composer and say, you know, okay, so on this, this cut, this, this is this part of the, the scene is where I've dropped the music out or I've brought in a piece of this temp music that has a more complex uh, uh, instrumental arrangement because I'm trying to emphasize this moment by doing that. I mean, that's the best of both worlds. When you have that opportunity to do a spotting session with a composer and then they can write that custom score and perform that custom score to what you've done. There's nothing There's nothing more beautiful than to send an edit off to a composer and get it back and go, oh my God, this gal took this whole thing to the next level. That That's such a wonderful feeling. Yeah, I bet. Um, right, so uh, number three. Uh, number three for me is, a lot of it is the television shows that I grew up with. Um, and these are a lot of like older shows that were in syndication when I was a kid. So being across the pond, I'm not, I'm not sure if you're familiar with like the Andy Griffith show, um, or, mm, or really? one I'm sure you're probably familiar with is the original twilight zone stuff. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I, and, and the reason I say that is because I find that they've influenced my editing in the sense that 
I don't like overcutting. I don't like over editing. I think that gets done a lot nowadays. And I think as an editor, you're cheating yourself when you do that. Um, there's, there's a lot of power in a close-up. And if you immediately go into coverage and into close-ups, you have just lost all the power that you had that, that close-up has. And I mean, there's times when you have to do it. There's times when you're working with new talent that aren't that good and you have to kind of build a performance uh, around multiple takes. But my God, if you have a two shot that just works as a two shot, avoid the tendency to just want to immediately get into coverage and, and cut, 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 cut. Let the damn thing play out in a two shot if it works and save that close up for when you really, really need it. Um, and I think this goes back a little bit to the conversation we had earlier about, you know, digital versus analog. I think in a lot of those older television shows, there were two reasons that they did that. One was because it just cost money um, to, to, to do a whole bunch of coverage. So they didn't have a lot of coverage. I mean, it cost in film stock, it cost in developing. So they didn't shoot a lot of coverage. And I think, too, back then you had a lot of these actors that were coming out of theater, that were coming out of the vaudeville era, and they knew how to hold an, hold an audience through a big two shot right? They could do it. They could mm -hmm. perform that. And that's not to say that, that, you know, actors still can't do that, but I think it was more prevalent then. It, it was just something they were more used to. So yeah. So my third one is older television shows that I grew up with just because oh, like they emphasize undercutting. You, you got to be a brave editor to do that though. Surely it uh, just commit to one shot for longer than most others would. Yes, my God, we got to be brave to do this thing that we do for a living. Oh, yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, nobody <laughs> nobody values us like they do engineers and scientists. And, you know, so you just you got to be brave to get in this business to start with. So if you're going to be brave enough to get into this business where so few um, can actually, you know, make a living at it and so many, even fewer actually reach the pinnacle. If you're going to have the bravery to do that, then just have the, have the bravery to under edit something. <laughs> <laughs> that I like. Right. Uh, question two, uh, three films that you think every micro budget filmmaker needs to watch. Um, I'm going to start off with, with my, my absolute favorite films i'm gonna cheat again and i'm gonna say anything that's done by the coen brothers um if you need a specific yeah. film hudsucker proxy nah raising arizona nah, maybe, you just you know, maybe, maybe no maybe simple in any film any film that they've done <laughs> um the, the way that they edit dialogue is just bloody brilliant um it, it's a master class in pacing and dialogue editing. So any that's the first one. Anything that the Coens have done. Okay, so that's your first 18. What's your second? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and also, I mean, early stuff that they've done. Like, go look at Blood Simple. That's, that's, that's a good just, like, 
character study. It's not a film that's going to cost a hundred million dollars to do, right? Yeah, I think it might. Yeah. Uh, and then, and to stay on that vein, the other film, because I, tr I tried to keep this in, in the mindset of independent filmmakers that don't have a ton of budget to blow. I mean, it's no use to, yeah. to name off a Marvel film because none of us have the budget for <laughs> it. Um, so I would say the second film, uh, Napoleon Dynamite. Great. Okay. Quirky little film um, has multiple characters that, I, that I cared about and multiple characters that I laughed about and multiple characters that I still reference today on things. And it was a budget minded script. It's again, not a, not a film that's going to cost, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to make. So Napoleon dynamite. And I also loved the score in that film. That was such a quirky, weird score. Um, yeah. And then third, because of the brilliant editing in it, is Whiplash. Tom Cross did an amazing job editing that film. There is so many, so many wonderful things in that film. The whole there's a scene, the, the, the my time scene, where where J.K. Simmons is trying to get the young drummer to play in a specific time, um, and the way that he edited that was just amazing. I mean, there's even there's even a couple of moments in there where there's complete 180 breaks, and, and, but they're done at a moment when the main character is confused. And by doing those 180 breaks, it completely confuses the audience without you even knowing why. Um, I mean, I didn't even realize there was 180 breaks in there until I went back and I just looked at it shot by shot. And it was like this is just bloody amazing editing. And he absolutely should have won that Oscar that he won for editing Whiplash. Uh, yeah, so yeah, definitely go watch Whiplash. It's another one, like uh, you were saying with the Coen brothers. You, if you had a decent camera, you could go out and film Whiplash tonight if you wanted to. It's, it's very accessible filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and if you're if you're planning on doing, you know, low budget, micro budget, no budget filmmaking, you should really be thinking about the budget when when you're writing the film. I mean, think about things that have a don't have a bunch of VFX shots because that's going to cost you. Think of think of things that's going to limit your your need for multiple locations because multiple locations are going to cost you not just in location fees, but in crew moves. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, if you can keep the crew in one place for as long as possible, that just saves you a lot of time and money. So be thinking of those things when you're in the writing process. Brilliant advice there. Um, right. So third question, uh, three things no micro-budget filmmaker should ever be without? The first thing is friends who you can trust to be honest with you. Um, yes. the, unfortunately, the most important thing during the filmmaking process, and especially the editing process, is objectivity. And even more unfortunately, that's the first thing that goes out the window. 
right? You lose objectivity yeah. when when you've looked at the same shots, you've looked at the same scenes, you've looked at the same film over and over and over again. One of the things that I do to try and alleviate that is when I'm looking at dailies for the first time, I am filling the clip with markers or locators um, with notes of how I felt when I first saw certain things. If there's a specific reaction um, in one character's face that I look at it and it affects me emotionally, I'll put a locator on that. I'll put a marker on it because I know that when I've seen that for the 13th, 14th, 100th time, I'm not going to have that same reaction. So you yeah, need yeah, friends that, that you can trust to be honest with you that can sit next to you in an edit bay and look at something and go, I don't understand this. This works. This doesn't. Preferably friends who aren't in the film industry, so they don't have any, you know, preconceived yes. notions of, oh, that doesn't really work, but it's going to cost a lot of money to fix it, so I can't say that. You know, you want <laughs> honest feedback from people you trust. Yeah, it's not something I've ever thought about before. Make show your film to people who just like film. They don't want to make them necessarily. Like your audience, show your film to your audience. Beta test it. Yeah, and I, as an editor, I watch a film completely differently when somebody is sit or I watch an edit, an edit that I've done completely differently when there's somebody sitting in a chair next to me watching it. I, they don't even have to say anything to me. I just watch it differently because I know they're there and I know they're watching it. And I'll notice things mm. that I didn't notice before just because they are present in the edit bay next to me. It's weird. It's it's, mm. it's just a weird phenomenon. And I've talked to other editors that tell me the exact same thing. <laughs> That's a weird little phenomenon. I suppose it's like having your manager breathing down your neck at work. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Um, right. So number two. So number two, and I think th this actually probably should have been number one. Um, it, it's the ability to check your ego at the door and serve the story. Yes. Your yes. job is whether you are, whether you're the writer, the director, the DP, the editor, the friggin' PA. Your job is to serve the story. It's not about your brilliant editing or your brilliant directing or writing or whatever. It's about serving the story. You don't have to have the best idea in the room. You just need the best idea to be in the room. Um, and so you got to be able to check your ego. Um, and yeah. you... And, and, and another problem that gets run into sometimes, especially on, on low-budget, micro-budget stuff, is that you have one person that's many of those things. And because mm. they're many of those things, they have either an ego around those things or – and when I say many of those things, you'll run into like – you know, the quadruple threat that's the writer, producer, director, lead actor in a film. Yeah. Um, and, and not only does that many times come with ego, it also many, many times comes with the inability to distance yourself from the film that's in your head and see the film that you really have. 
Um, there's yeah, there's a yeah. reason why actors shouldn't be in edit bays. There's a reason why writers shouldn't be in edit bays um, because there's they get too married to what they've done that they can't step away from it. And that's not to say you can't be a writer director. That's obviously bullshit because there's been amazing writer directors before or director mm -hmm. actors before, but you have to have the ability to, to step away from it and, and serve the story, not your part of being the story. You have to serve the story first. Yeah. That that's, Easier said than done for a start, but very, very, very worth taking heed of. Yeah, that, I think uh, it, it's been difficult for all of us at some point in time in our career as filmmakers. We've gotten married to something that we thought was absolutely brilliant, and it wasn't. <laughs> you know, yeah, so you got to be able to walk away. Ugly baby syndrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, number three. Uh, number three, a, a wealthy friend or relative that wants an IMDB page. That's, that's <laughs> very, very important. That's, that seems to be how independent films get financed these days. So <laughs> find, find yeah, a trust fund that, baby yeah. that wants an IMDB page, right? That's, that's <laughs> the hardest, the hardest part of filmmaking is funding. So yeah, have a rich relative. Nice. I'll, uh, I'll work on that one myself, I think. <laughs> <laughs> or be the rich relative. That would be the nicest way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I like that even better. Right. On that note, I think I'm quite happy with this. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to thank you for coming on. Well, lovely. Thank you for having me. This was fun. It's always fun to, to talk about the process. Yeah, I've enjoyed this. Uh, do you want to tell the people listening where they can find you? Uh, yeah, so my, uh, let's see, my, my website uh, for my production company is M, as in Mike, the number two, video productions with an S.com. So that's the website that is, uh, again, my production company. Um, yeah, that's probably the best place to find out about me. I mean, I have an IMDB page. Uh, my full name is Michael. Last name is Tao, T-O-W-E. You can see my IMDB page just by searching that, or I can send you a link to that. Um, and the, yeah. uh, the M2 Video Productions, there's also a Vimeo page with a... Oh, what is what is uh, Vimeo call it? They're not playlists. They're something else. But it's got all of the short films that I've worked on on it. Well, I'll uh, stick a link to all of them down in the show notes for anyone who wants to check them out. Lovely. Well, uh, so yeah, on that note, I will say goodbye and thanks for coming on. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. It was fun chatting. Have a great day. And you too. And there we go. Another two-parter out the way. There's quite a lot of two-parters starting to come through. I quite enjoy them. You know, two episodes for the effort of one. I'm not going to argue. There's a honest about that. Uh, yeah, if you're enjoying the show, like us, comment us, rate us, all the other shit that you're meant to do with podcasts. We're available on iTunes and YouTube and... No, we're not. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Google, all them other good, tasty places. Subscribe to the show if you want to be updated. We're on Twitter, we're on Reddit sometimes. There's a Facebook page that I've basically abandoned, but, you know, feel free to have a look. Uh, not a great deal else to say. I've got some shit to crack on with, and I'm sure you have too. On that note, that is a wrap. <laughs>